Welcome back to Cognitive Evolution. I'm Cody Commerce, and this is my show about the personal side of the intellectual journey. My guest today is Antonio Damasio. And I want to start off by saying that, I mean, Antonio is definitely one of the most eminent neurologists of his era and to some degree, maybe even all time. Like, he is in particular from a sort of public intellectual standpoint, a legend for his originally 1994 book, Descartes' Error, Emotion, Reason, and the Human Brain. And that's kind of, you know, been the cornerstone of, of, of what he's built on in many ways, which is this understanding of the brain and more recently consciousness and, and all this sort of stuff that is grounded in our understanding of, of emotion and the embodied experience of having a mind in a brain. And um, he is, his official title is uh, the David Dornzeif Chair in Neuroscience uh, and Professor of Psychology, Philosophy, and Neurology at USC. And he's also um, an adjunct professor at the Salk Institute. His most recent one is called Feeling and Knowing, in which he gives his sort of overarching theory of consciousness and you should absolutely 100% go out and buy it. Um, you know, uh, it's, it's, it's full of a lot of cool stuff that builds on everything that he's been doing over his career, but is not just a recapitulation of it. It's, it's, it's taking it to, to another level. So there's, there's another thing, though, that I want to say at the beginning of this interview, which is that to a large degree, I really feel like I, I personally, as the interviewer, kind of failed in this, this interview. Um, I think I failed Antonio I, to do him justice to present his perspective in the best possible light, which is which is always what I'm striving for. And I think uh, you know this conversation is a little bit of a letdown, you know, to you, the audience, to really dig into the most interesting and, and compelling content. But um, I want to, uh, and you know, uh, we t Antonio and I talked a bit afterwards, and he saying, oh, you know, I don't usually like to talk about the, the sort of personal side and everything. So definitely let it be stated for the record that, you know, me, uh, this was me asking him questions about his personal thing. And, uh, you know, that that's not his favorite mode. And, uh, you know, he prefers to, um, you know, focus on, on the work. And I guess the reason that I'm releasing it um, is that, you know, like, you never know what people are going to get out of something. And he's still such a incredible figure and we do cover a lot of you know personal aspects to him and it's just interesting to see how he thinks about this uh sort of stuff you know like there's there's people that i talk to on this it's like i ask them uh you know like a single question and they go on for 20 minutes giving some sort of personal anecdotes or whatever but you know my conversation with george lakoff recently was like that it's like i ask him hey george you know like so what's the weather like well you know like when i was growing up and yeah and he just goes on and then you know antonio's just totally different mode so i think that's just a useful data point of like well okay you don't have to be this one type of person who likes to talk about yourself in, in a certain way and, and everything. You can be, you know, uh, uh, sort of more reserved about that sort of thing. And the other reason is that I've mentioned in the last couple episodes that I'm rethinking the structure of, of what I do in, in, in this podcast. And definitely this conversation with Antonio was one of the things that got me starting to think about it. And yeah, as I've, if you've, if you've checked out those last couple episodes, I mentioned that, you know, this whole personal side of the intellectual journey thing, that's really representative of where I was at at the beginning of graduate school. And I feel like to a large degree, I've satisfied my sort of, 
you know, inquiry into understanding that to the degree that, that I wanted to. And now I'm looking to reorient the show to be premised on something that is able to grow with me from where I'm at now. And yeah, you know, like feeling like, okay, I should have done a better job in this interview with Antonio Damasio. It, it was like, okay, well, you know, really what I should be doing is taking his, you know, ideas seriously. I should have, you know, like I, I should have been better prepped to talk to him about his, his recent book. And, you know, like to some degree, it was just a miscommunication. Um, but anyway, it got me starting to think like, that's really what I should be taking seriously are, are those sort of things. And, um, you know, it's, it's not just this single interview that's made me feel that way, but, uh, the sort of larger current of, of where everything is going. But, but yeah, no, this is, this definitely was something that it, like I've been reflecting on this recently, I guess is what I'm trying to say. And therefore I still want to share it with everyone with the, you know, caveat that I've made up here that, you know, Antonio's great. I put him in a position that's less than his favorite. And it's been making me sort of question, you know, what I want my approach as an interviewer to be and, and what I want the premise of the show uh, to be. So anyway, I just want to say thanks again to Antonio for taking the time to do the show. And, uh, you know, I look I look forward to, to seeing if any, uh, what, what people get out of this. So like I said, go out, check out his new book, Feeling and Knowing. Uh, his, his theory of consciousness, really cool stuff. So uh, I guess uh, if you do want to follow along with how the the show is going to change and what I'm going to do with it, please check out my Substack newsletter. You can find that at codycommerce.substack.com. Uh, that's a huge support to the show if you sign up for that, even for a free subscription. So uh, thank you so much for listening. And without any further ado, here is Antonio Damasio. So I guess the the first thing that I want to ask you is uh, if there is basically like a first time that you can remember getting really excited about an idea. So this could be a book you stumbled upon as a kid or maybe some sort of formative experience that, that made you think or a course you took an undergraduate, a research experience, that sort of thing. Well... Uh... I think it wouldn't be it wouldn't be a school-based experience. It would probably be something actually at home, and it would be if you think about an idea. I think it would have to be with ideas that I had around basically toys. Uh, so uh, something that I would have had first thing that came into my mind is a a train set. Uh, and ideas about uh, about the the uh, what made trains move, and then something very similar about cars. Uh, again, starting with toy cars, but maybe also connected with real cars, and uh, a, a very big curiosity about engines, uh, and that clearly was an idea, and it's something that I. I will bet precedes my my uh, any any school years. I mean, probably not primary schools, but certainly not, uh, it precedes high schools because I remember drawing designs for engines and being very curious about cylinders and pistons and what made engines work. And 
and I, I remember trying to think about where you would place the escape valves in an engine and drawing it uh, and sort of putting, putting them sideways, uh, not knowing, of course, that they had been invented already, but very happy that I was inventing something. So that, that, that would be um, early experiences about ideas at that level. Um, now I'm pretty sure that I had other ideas and that had to do with connections to family, for example, or to spaces, but I don't know that they were well-defined. I can remember uh, occasions in my childhood which I, I think had to involve ideas in the proper sense of the term, or certainly reasonably abstract manipulations of images. But, um, but of course, I, my, my, my ability to penetrate that is very, very limited. And then when, uh, when did something resembling an interest in a formal pursuit in psychology and neurology and, and the, the, the stuff that came you know, later on for you, what, what did that look like? Um, well, pursuits in, in neurology, uh, I, I can sort of trace them, and that comes much, much later. Uh, and that's something from my, from my late high school years, uh, which, as you probably know, I was born in Portugal, and what you have, uh, high school in Portugal is a very different thing, still is, and definitely was uh, in those times, and it's really a, a, a VC arrangement where you have basically three cycles of education and I know that the not the interest but the a pointer towards neurology came towards the end of that period so that would be around 17 uh, and that came from a very specific person who was my professor of philosophy who had also been my professor of history uh, in so uh, somebody that I that I was a student of for five years at that point, um, and who knew about my interest in psychology, and who very clearly told me, you know, I think what what you what you need to think is about neurology and uh, and studying the brain uh, as opposed to studying the mind. Um, but by then, my interests in psychology were very well established, and I had been uh, concerned with psychology, not primarily uh, from studying psychology or even knowing what psychology was, but from uh, reading books and seeing films, um, probably from just being alive. But, but, uh, but books were very important, and uh, I had an infinite curiosity uh, in my adolescence about um, what people wrote uh, in novels primarily, but also in essays. And, um, and so that, that established my curiosity about the human mind. Obviously not, not, not exactly the same words um, because it was all pretty much primitive, but, um, but nonetheless it was there. So what, what did that look like specifically in, in what you were doing at the time? This, this idea that's, well, in order to understand the mind, 
you need to understand the brain. And then, of course, throughout your work, you know, kind of this thing that's like, well, if you really want to understand the brain, you can't just look at the brain itself. You have to look at this sort of bigger picture. How did that start to play out for you? Well, that, that would, I mean, in terms of, of, of having a, a, a structure and a, a proper approach, I'm sure that that would be in, after I went to medical school, so that uh, it, it's not something. So it, it's sort of beyond adolescence, I would say. But the, the, the interest in the human mind was very well formed and very mature, uh, enough for me to play with things such as, um, you know, reading a novel or reading a poem and thinking about how I would transform that in film. Uh, and I had a very big interest in film. In fact, the, I th think the, uh, I, I never thought I would be a novelist, for example, or a poet, um, or, or a neuroscientist or philosopher for that matter. But I did think I was going to be a film director. So if, I, if you had, had asked me at age 15 what I wanted to be, I, I wanted to be the, 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 the next Orson Welles. Um, that, that, that would have been my kind of pathetic uh, motivation. Um, but, uh, but, but so the, 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 and understanding how we tick, understanding how minds operate and uh, reactions of people and the notion of uh, life's drama and so forth uh, was there about that age. So you can say that I had graduated from uh, engines and pistons to to um, to the the real life of the mind. Yeah, so I'm really interested to hear more more about this. So your your interest in cinema. Let's talk a little bit more about that. What I mean. So what drew you to that particular medium? What were you getting out of it? What specifically was it about Orson Welles that that spoke to you? Yeah, tell, can you tell me more about what you were getting out uh, out of this and how that kind of what what, the, what all that did for you? Well, I mean, what drew me to film is uh, what what draws everyone to film is the the animation of the images is the directness that those images have in relation to uh, our our lives. Uh, the fact that the translation between the medium and your mind is much more direct than, for example. Uh, if you're reading a poem or uh, a short story. So th 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 there's a, a directness there that is, of course, very attractive. That's the reason why visual images are attractive and the fact that it is entertaining. And it is entertaining in a very immediate, rapid way, as opposed to the entertainment that comes out of a book. Of course, uh, I'm not going to say that entertainment through film is better um, than entertainment through reading a great novel that you immerse yourself in. Not at all. They're very different things. Um, but one happens to be immediate and convenient, and the other requires time and concentration if it is going to be enjoyed at the same level. Can we go back to your mentor, you, or, or this philosophy professor that you have? Uh, who was it, and what did you... What did you get out of there? Um, well, th th this was a, 
his name was Joel Serran, uh, and he was actually a philosopher. Uh, and uh, and in the in, in those days in the in the BC um, in Portugal or in France and many other places in Europe, the professors that you found in the BC were actually extremely um, uh, sophisticated people. Very often, people that had not found a place in universities that were university level. So you, you had the, the immense privilege of being taught by people who were deeply academic and, uh, and were very professional, and not just going through the motions of transmitting knowledge, but were involved in that knowledge. And that's, of course, made a, a huge amount of difference. And so this man was a philosopher and uh, eventually did become a professor uh, at uh, uh, one of the uh, Lisbon universities, uh, and he was a very brilliant and very established person that I uh, had the good fortune of re-meeting many, many years ago, something like 20 or 30 years after, when I already was established in my career, uh, and he was very established in his career as well. And uh, he still remembered that he had told me that I should become a neurologist and he told me, see, I was right. Portugal at the time was still a dictatorship around the time when you were training. Is that is that true? That is correct. That was one of the reasons why there were um, some of these brilliant uh, professors uh, in the lycée because they could not get into the university. There was one more reason why uh, it was diff it was not just a, a question of the positions, but some people would not be admitted into the university, uh, especially uh, if, it, if we're talking about uh, technical uh, fields, it wouldn't be a problem, but something that touched on ideas. So take a professor of history or a professor of, of philosophy, it wouldn't be so easy to, to get your place in the university because uh, uh, beyond any kind of merit relating to your preparation, you would have to pass the uh, established um, government. How did that influence? Did you go straight from Portugal to, to California then? No, I did not go straight from Portugal to California. But medical school, I started very early to come to the United States to, for short periods of study and some actually longer periods of study. So my, my career uh, uh, was influenced both by what I studied in Portugal, obviously, in medical school in Portugal, which was excellent, uh, because in the technical fields, there was I mean, the difference between what was done uh, in, during dictatorship or not, and, and what was done after in technical fields is, of course, minimal. Um, but, uh, but we had a good school there, and I came to the United States very frequently, and I'm probably more influenced uh, by the United States, than, or, or by England, by the way, where I, I went quite frequently. In those days, you could fly from Lisbon to London uh, in an hour and 45 minutes, jet, which was very convenient, cannot do that today. Um, and so there the, the was a, a very large influence of the, 
uh, you could say, Anglo-Saxonic science and philosophy. So this is maybe a, a bit of a personal question, but I, I'm curious, how did you meet your, your wife, Hannah? Uh, in, in medical school. She was, a, she was also a, a medical student, and we discovered that we had very similar interests very early on. Um, and uh, she also, as you probably know, became uh, um, a neuro person, uh, both as a neurologist, although with interests that were different from mine, and then eventually as a neuroimaging person, because she was a, an early pioneer in the anatomy that could be extracted from uh, neural images. I would uh, love to talk about Descartes' Error, which is uh, a book that I read back when I was first getting into psychology and, you know, has touched uh, my life and a lot of people's lives. And uh, that came out back in, in 1994, kind of the book that put you on the map as a public intellectual, if you want to call it that. Uh, so can you... Uh, maybe spell out a little bit uh, what did the origin of that book look, look like? Where, where did those ideas come from? Well, those ideas came from a, a considerable maturity of research at that point that had to do with, with affect in general, had to do largely with emotions at that point, um, and uh, had to do with how emotions operated, uh, what were the fundamental psychological and neural processes that were behind emotions and more generally uh, the, the life of the effects. And, uh, but, but then very importantly, it was influenced by the fact that I was, the, the, one of the main ways in which I was studying those phenomena was by studying patients, neurological patients that had focal brain damage. So patients that had suffered stroke or that had had a surgical ablation of a certain region um, for treatment of tumors or treatment sometimes even of vascular processes as well. And as a result of that, uh, I, I was able to uh, realize a very important connection between the ways in which people make decisions and uh, the, the integrity or lack of integrity of certain regions of the brain. And so to make a long story short, uh, the idea was that when you are making decisions, you're not just influenced by the facts, by the re reasons and by, by the reasoning that allows you to come to a certain conclusion and make a decision, but you're also influenced with enormous weight by the life of the effects, by how you react emotively to a certain step in that reasoning, uh, by how you contemplate the outcome of your decision and anticipate it, and so forth. And so the, the, the point there it was to say, look, this idea that people are good reasoners if they don't have any emotions, if they don't have feelings, if they are just having it cold and algorithmically, as one would say today, um, is just wrong. Uh, and we normal individuals, uh, unless they're zombies, 
they're influenced a lot by their affective life. And they're influenced more or less by that affective life, uh, depending on the circumstances in which they're making a decision, on the topic of the decision, and of course on their personalities, because there, there is of course a large spectrum between people that are very emotive and people that are somewhat cold. Um, but even so, even the people that are somewhat cold, unless they're pathologic, uh, have quite a lot of emotivity. So uh, th th that th that was the background for Descartes. And, uh, and, and and of course, the, the, the title is a, is, a, is a cute title to, uh, to, to call attention to the fact that um, things that are normally perceived as of the body, such as emotions, and things that are perceived as of the mind, such as reasonings, um, that these things cannot really be separated. And so it, of course, alludes to the, to the to, to Cartesian dualism. But the, the goal of that book uh, was not at all to, to go into a deep discussion of Descartes' philosophy or anyone's philosophy. Uh, it was about the facts of neuroscience at that point. Um, and uh, I, I, I liked, I enjoyed writing it. I liked to do it. Uh, and it had uh, quite a lot of, um, uh, had a, a great reception from in every, in, in every aspect. And I'm, I'm still astonished by how today it continues to have an impact. Yeah, it truly is a landmark book in, you know, popular psychology, psychology that, 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 that came out and, and resonated with a large audience beyond the academic discipline itself. I mean, you've had, you know, tw 25 years or whatever it is now to reflect on that. What do you think was it about the book or the way you structured it? Or, you know, what about the text resonated so deeply with people? Um, well, you know, I, I haven't made any deep analysis of it, but I think that it, it, it's actually the, the, the novelty or the scandal of the idea that affect could play a role in decisions. People did not really at that time and then after uh, did not really want to accept that. I think that deeply people know that that's true, um, but overtly people don't like to to accept that. And in, in, in many cultures, um, I don't, there may be exceptions, but in, in, I would say probably in most cultures, the idea that you have to have a cool head and you have to reason coldly uh, is the accepted idea. Uh, and it still, uh, it, it, it still works. And yet, when, uh, since the, the, the book was against that idea, uh, I think people uh, realize that so, that's true. And that, and that uh, it, although they want to have this, uh, this cover, this shield of uh, coldness, in fact, that's not the way most people are. And people recognize that deeply. Yeah, I, I, I think that's, that sounds about right. To me, it seems like that emotion, as, as you know, kind of like abroad, like, you know, basically... A psychological scientist interested in affective states rather than cognitive states. Uh, it was kind of like a little bit of the ugly stepchild of of cognition and you know cognitive science that sort of stuff, experimental psychology, in the second half of the twentieth century. 
and like you know you could you could say that the the intellectual market had sort of undervalued this idea or this space of ideas or this this pursuit of you know um this this phenomenon and i think since that time we've done a lot to you know correct that market failure and probably you know a good portion of it is due to the success of of you know your your book and in your program of research uh but i guess maybe can you can you say specifically was there some time that it kind of clicked for you that it's like hey here's what the mainstream is is doing they're saying oh everything's all cognitive it's it's kind of all this abstract mind stuff but no there's actually this really important visceral emotional effective uh, version what was was is there was there a specific thing that kind of put on that light bulb for you so to speak no I don't think it's a, it's a specific light bulb kind of experience is something that sort of dawns on you over a period of time. But but it, it, if there's anything light bulb-like, it's to, to, to see some of those patients that I refer to in the, in, in the book and that I've written in proper scientific uh, um, publications, see how the clipping of affect rendered the ability to decide correctly so pathetically poor. Uh, That's the closest to a sort of uh, ha-ha moment in which you say, this is is strange, uh, but but there's something in in this. And then, of course, having the the, the confirmation of that in, in similar cases, because that's exactly what it is, building a series that can give strength to, to, to that idea. So there's, there's one thing that definitely stands out to me about the structure of the, the text that you created, which is that you started off with the case study of Phineas Gage, and that was a sort of center of gravity, um, you know, a way of, of structuring the ideas in, in the book. And this was before a time where it was incredibly common for psychologists to have trade books and then to have them, you know, sort of structured as this mix of storytelling and scientific findings, which, you know, is, is what everyone does today. But you open with this really dramatic story of Phineas Gage, you know, for anyone who doesn't know, it's, you know, 19th century rail worker, gets a metal spike driven through his left frontal lobe, survives, and then, uh, you know, kind of becomes this early case study for like, well, here's what happens when you lose function in a certain part of your brain. So I, I'm curious, is there... Were you? Was there a model that you were following of of how that worked, or how did it? Co- how did the you know sort of idea come to you that that was you know how you wanted to structure the book? No, I was not following any model. No, I think it, it's it's just a storytelling device. It, it made sense. It made sense to tell it that way. Now it's possible that I I, I don't remember, but it's possible that I lectured. Um, using that so in other words in trying to make ideas clear i it would be very unlikely that i would not have used stories such as the story of phineas gage uh in 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 a class i would attribute that to my interest in storytelling so it was of course i the, the the that case is is facts is scientific facts uh, other cases that I talk about in other investigations that I talk about in the book are scientific facts, but there's a way in which you present them and you can either present them 
in a boring and attractive way, plodding through the facts, or you can present it in a way that is more attractive. And I, if there's something uh, there that is of interest, would be my interest in storytelling from what I told you about my interest in cinema, for example. Yeah, so um, I want to pick up on this thread then of storytelling and specifically novels. So you, you mentioned this, you know, along with cinema as something that's really sort of sparked your your early interest, that sort of stuff. So are there novels or authors that you can point to and said, oh, yeah, this is someone that I, I really liked and got a lot out of and, you know, their work meant a lot to me? Hmm. Interesting. Well, as you, as you know, in, uh, ahead of this interview, you, you told me that you were going to ask me about three books that were important in my life. I thought it was a very intriguing uh, request. And so I, yesterday I actually tried to think about three books that were important in my life. And you know what I concluded? I don't have three books that were important in my life. I have dozens of books that were important in my life. But for you, I actually wrote down uh, a number of trios of books. Um, I was sort of having a, an essay on that. And uh, it's, it's very interesting because the if I would try to get three books, uh, it depends on the moments. But it would be, uh, I would have to think about three books that were important in science, three books that were important in storytelling, and then there would appear also, it's very much tied to the languages in which I read this, those books. So obviously I read lots of books in Portuguese, as you can expect, but I, I, I spoke French from very early on and I read French as well and I read, read English very early on too. So probably I'd say anything after age 10, 11, I, I, I was reading in three languages. And so it's, it's even more difficult to, to get the weights of those things. I can tell you that, that the scientific, uh, um, the reading of scientific books is of course very late. I, I cannot, I, I, I came up with six titles that were important for me. And I actually cannot tell you when I read them. One of course is Darwin, another is Freud. I do remember the book that uh, um, I thought, thought was most interesting, and that's Civilization and its Discontents. And then there's a book that is very important to me, which is uh, White Hat, uh, and that's Science in the Modern World. And that definitely I, I did not read on my teens or anything like it. I, I probably read it already after medical school. Um, and then there were things that were not books, but they were very influential for me. And that, uh, and that had to do with uh, discoveries in people, and they're almost always in biology. So, for example, Francis Crick uh, was, a, was a clearly a, a figure uh, that was almost like a pop figure for me. Um, and Jonas Salk is a, another one. Um, and uh, much, much later, I would actually another one was my mentor, my primary mentor in the United States, and that's Norman Geshwind, uh, who was a professor at, at Harvard, professor of neurology at, at Harvard, and who wrote 
um, something eventually came out as a book, but it was actually a huge uh, duo of scientific papers that were published in Brain, the, uh, the British scientific journal. Uh, and it was called Disconnection Syndromes in um, Animals and Men, in Humans. Uh, and this was really the most influential paper that I read uh, early on, and it influenced my career. And I, I became a disciple of Norman Gashrind, and, and later on we became very good friends, and Sidney is one of the closest people I can think of. Um, and in terms of both Crick uh, and, uh, and Salk, I had the good fortune of meeting both of them uh, in their, both cases in their later years, and they were both friends, and uh, we knew Jonas and his wife, and Francis and his wife very closely. Uh, and it was really fascinating to to see how their minds worked, uh, and also to constantly contrast that with what my imagination had been of them. Um, of course, tied to the discoveries that were happening when I was uh, quite young, that with the, the polio vaccine uh, or with, of course, DNA. How about uh, Fernando Pessoa? So you're you're a Lisbon guy, and you won the Pessoa Prize. What was it in like 1998 or something? I don't remember when it was, but uh, 2002, something like that. Anyway, Pessoa Pessoa is, is definitely very high, and uh, and uh, it was somebody that I read uh, abundantly. The, the, the two Portuguese poets that I read a lot and had a huge influence in, in the structure of sentences. Both of them, I imagine, are heteronyms of Fernando Pessoa, right? You know? No, 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 no. There's, there's Pessoa, Pessoa, uh, and heteronyms. It doesn't make any difference because you can, you know, it's different, it's different poets, but, uh, but it, it's still the same poetry. Um, no, it's Camões, a very difficult name, very difficult to, to pronounce. So, Luis de Camões is, is spelled C A M O E S, and it has this awful Portuguese diphthong, which is Oin, Camões. It's very difficult to, to, to pronounce. One of those awful things that the English language got rid of completely, which is why it's so popular. Um, so, Camões was a, a, a great poet from a different period. It's really a poet of the, of the discoveries, of the Portuguese discoveries and of the, the period of glory uh, from the 14th century to the 16th century. Uh, and uh, it's brilliant poetry and uh, brilliant, uh, um, brilliant writing uh, in every way. And of course, a big influence on, on Pessoa. Um, uh, so Pessoa clearly was a an influence. There's an, another Portuguese writer that is very uh, important and interesting, and another one that whose name is difficult to pronounce, and is Essa de Queiroz. Queiroz is Q U E I R O Z, Queiroz. Uh, and he wrote beautiful, brilliant novels. One is called The Maish, M A I S A S. Uh, and that's a, a surname, so it's the name of a family, and it's a brilliant book about uh, about life in the 19th century uh, Portugal. 
uh, there's another book called Asivad Yeshash, The City and the Mountains. Uh, and that's uh, another very interesting, that actually may be my favorite book. So it was, it was great to, to read those people because the language is so beautiful, so transparent, it's really great. And if, if you go to uh, influences in England, then it's, you know, there are all sorts of uh, striking influences. And one is Shakespeare for sure, because I, I read not so much the, the, the poetry, although I, I like the poetry, but I, I, I read and saw the place performed. And that was a huge influence. Um, and in, you know, if one had to read only one thing in life, uh, maybe reading Hamlet would not be a bad idea. And, and, and that, would, that would give you a pretty good education to, to start with. But, but the Shakespeare plays were definitely extremely important. And important both in relation to Shakespeare himself, and then because I like music very much, they also became important in the operatic version of the, of the uh, plays. Because so you have the Macbeth opera, and you, you, you have uh, Hamlet, and you have Othello, of course, uh, and you have um, uh, Romeo and Juliet, you have all sorts of adaptations, so, or Falstaff, for that matter. So you, you, you have great plays with great writing, great poetry, and then you have the, the, the transition of that into the world of music. Um, but curiously, in, in opera, with a great preservation of the characters. Uh, for example, um, I, I think that the character like Falstaff, uh, which is a brilliant character, uh, is uh, remarkable uh, in the way Verdi constructed a play, constructed an opera about this single character that was actually drawn from different uh, plays of, uh, of Shakespeare. Uh, so it's, it's really quite interesting. You can say almost that the Verdi version of Falstaff is better than the Shakespeare version uh, with the advantage, not only structurally in terms of playwriting, but also in terms of uh, what it, the fact that it has music on top of the, on top of the literary uh, quality that was there in the original. If you're interested in, in influences, if, if I, if I had to think about the most important influences from the US itself, where after all I've spent most of my life now, um, I would say actually it's, it's a, a group of writers from early in the 20th century. And then I, again, I read very, very early, first in Portuguese, um, and then in English. And that would be Hemingway, Faulkner, and Fitzgerald. And I think those three guys are absolutely brilliant in very different ways. I can only imagine what Faulkner is like in Portuguese. <laughs> oh, it's, it's marvelous. I, I can, you know, I, you know what? The first thing I read in uh, Faulkner was As I Lay Dying. And I actually read in Portuguese. And in Portuguese, it's called Na Minha Morte, In My Death. Brilliant translation, actually, because As I Lay Dying is very difficult to translate, you know, um, in any language. 
uh, this this as I lay, you know, the, the, this continuous tense. Um, so translating is that uh, in my death or on my death uh, is is, uh, is a very brilliant way. And uh, I still have that book, and, and I have some of those originals. But then I I had uh, in in my adolescence I absolutely loved Hemingway, and I thought that you know when I discovered Hemingway which was after Faulkner, and I think after Fitzgerald, I said, oh, this is the guy. This, this guy really is, is cool. And, uh, and it's interesting because recently I uh, tried to read again, The Sun Also Rises, and I was appalled. You, know, this, you, know, there, you, you don't have a page in which you don't drink something or you don't kill something. And I remember reading <clears throat> The Movable Feast, or a movable feast, uh, which was really marvelous. And that, by the way, I have a sense that linguistically uh, it, it influenced me. I, I think that if I had an aspiration, it would be to write like, like Hemingway, not like Fitzgerald, not like Faulkner, but Hemingway. It is so, so direct, so, so. And it, it's interesting because you could say, well, he was a, a, an adolescent uh, psychopath. Um, which he probably was, but that's not here nor there. The, 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 the thing is that is that when he wrote, he wrote very seriously. And when you see, uh, there's an, a very interesting book published about uh, his own editing of his texts. And you, you're looking at somebody that is a serious writer. The, the struggle to get one of those marvelous sentences Perfect. Uh, it's not something that came out just like that. Yeah. Uh, and and that I actually have a lot of respect for. So. I'm happy to to close there, but I, I also have a couple of questions about your your new books. Maybe we can point people towards that. So I actually listened to a couple of interviews that you did um, with people about this book, and and there was something that you mentioned, which was that uh, you sort of started off the book thinking that it was going to be one way, and sort of with one conception of it. And then you came across some new data from some recently published, you know, papers. And then we're like, so, oh, I actually have to change some of the way that I'm doing this and, and what I'm what I'm presenting here. So can you say a little bit about what that initial idea was and you know what data arrested your attention and, and how that sort of changed the way you're thinking of it? Right. Well, so very, very simply, uh, consciousness is a very important topic, obviously. It's something that I've been working on for a long time. And uh uh, I, I think that this is probably the, well, I, I've touched on consciousness in almost all of my books and in many, many of hundreds of papers that I've written in, in my life. Um, and there was one entire prior book called Self Comes to Mind that was on that topic. But th this is, is a different view and I think a much cleaner view of what the problem of consciousness is. And I think it's uh, um, uh, very different from proposals, not only of mine, but of colleagues of mine on the topic of consciousness. I think the topic of consciousness is far simpler than people want to make of it. I think people constantly confuse the notion of an extended mind uh, with the notion of consciousness. So for us to have this conversation, uh, you and I need to have a 
an extensive amount of knowledge about ourselves, about the world, we need to have a complicated memory process that allows us to retrieve things. I mean, uh, I've, I've been pulling things out of my memory for the past 50 minutes uh, that I didn't even think I was going to think about today, but I did. So that memory capacity is there. The capacity to reason over the material you pull out is there, is part of that very big extended mind. The capacity to have uh, emotions and feelings about it. The ability to create, because it's not just what you say, but it's how you say it, that is part of the part of what is happening. The ability to use languages, uh, which of course is essential for what we're doing here. You wouldn't understand what I'm saying if you did not have this capacity to translate uh, linguistic signals, in this case from English, and, and if I did not have the capacity to pull up ideas that are imagetic and that there are not in, in, in linguistic form to begin with, but I pull them together in sentences and I create these sentences that I'm then uttering in one medium, which is the oral medium, although I could have used a pen and write it or type it. So all of this stuff is what people think consciousness is. And people keep thinking about very complicated things, global uh, uh, ways of pulling together all of this information and creating this spectacular mind that we obviously know is conscious because we know that we're here. And I think that's the wrong approach. Uh, and if we want to have a complete story, you definitely need to have that part. But that's not what made us conscious. What makes us conscious is, as I say in this new book, Feeling and Knowing, this incredible novel phenomenon called feeling. And it's a phenomenon that it, it, it sort of bubbles up in you all the time, continuously. Even when you're sleeping, uh, especially when you're sleeping and dreaming, and it is only removed from you when you are under anesthesia, or when you are in coma, or when you faint, then it's removed from you. But that ability to generate feelings is a continuous process, and it's like generating music. It's something that is happening there all the time, and there are fluctuations in it. And there are moments in which that feeling can be one of well-being, and repose, and harmony, or it can be jittered, as when you are angry or when you are in fear, uh, or it, it can have needs of yours, such as uh, hunger and thirst and desire, uh, or it can have something very important called pain. So the, the, the hypothesis in this book is that homeostatic feelings, which are hunger, thirst, pain, desire, well-being, malaise, these this brief constellation was a novelty that was introduced in evolution very early on, not in humans like us, but creatures that are far simpler. And when that happened, uh, you, you had such novelty and you had you introduced such power in the ability to regulate life that from a point of view of evolution that was selective and it was grasped onto and it stayed forever 
in all other organisms. So today, when we make images, when I'm making images right now of you on my screen, uh, or the images of the, the world around me in my study, uh, what I'm doing is producing images that then are made conscious by the fact that I have this continuous experience of myself alive here sitting at my desk. So I'm not conscious because of the images I construct around me. I'm conscious because I'm feeling my life. That's it. Uh, and that's what feeling and knowing explains uh, and contrasts with other explanations. And it's a very, uh, uh, a very simple kind of book, uh, which I, I wrote. I was trying to do a haiku. I was trying to do as clean and, and, and uh, simple a book as possible. Um, and I think I succeeded in a bit. Of course, uh, one thing I don't recommend is for people to read what they wrote because it's awful. You know, whenever you go, whenever you have to go back and read what you write, unless you're a complete idiot, you want to do it better. And uh, so it's, it's painful to, to read what you wrote. But I, I have to say, I've read several sections. And uh, the other day, one of your calling interviewers read a section of the book for me aloud. And uh, I, I listened to it and I said, not bad. You know, it's, that's actually pretty good. Thank you. Uh, and I, I, think, I think it does the, the job. So it's called Feeling and Knowing. And um, the subtitle is Making Minds Conscious. Antonio, thank you so much. You've been so generous with your time today. I really honestly do appreciate it. And it was a huge pleasure to talk to you. Thank you very much. Have a good day. That was my conversation with Antonio Damasio. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, maybe, uh, you know, I mentioned at the outset uh, my conversation with George Lakoff. There's, I think, a lot of interesting compare and contrasts, both in their ideas and the way they talk about themselves and, and everything like that. So that's an episode to check out for sure if you, if you, if you enjoyed this one. Um, yeah, I think I talked a lot about the interview at the beginning and sort of preface it by saying I don't think I did a good job. I think it was, you know, just poorly executed on my part. So, you know, shout out again to Antonio for being a good sport about it and and everything. And um, yeah, no, it's just something I've been reflecting on in terms of how I want to approach my interviews and, and approach the show in the future. Um, and so I won't say anything more about that, but I will say uh, thank you so much to um, Emily Chen, who is a uh, RA in Rebecca Sachs's lab at MIT. She did her undergrad in McGill. And she has come on to the show as a producer and editor and is also helping me to think through the next directions of the show. And um, so she's, you know, uh, come on to the show to help me sort of take it to the next level. And uh, ultimately, she's going to go on to do her show. So big shout out to her. Um, Emily, thanks for, uh, you know, coming on. I'm, I'm excited for everything we're going to do together. Uh, in the future and uh yeah she'll you'll you'll be hearing a lot more from her in the coming episodes so um thanks emily and thank you everyone uh for listening if you want to support the show uh definitely check out my substack newsletter at codycommerce.substack.com thank you for listening and i'll be back here next week with another episode of cognitive revolution mm -hmm.